Welcome to the Best Ever You Network, celebrating our third year on Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Thank you for helping us become a number one rated live show with over one million global listeners. Our team is on a mission to help you discover your authentic best self and bring it to the world. And now, here's our show. Hello, everybody. Happy fall. It's scary to say that. Um, I cannot believe it's September 15th already. We have been doing so much baseball <laughs> all summer long, and it's kind of uh, winding down here just a little bit. But um, the show's kicking off, and we have an awesome guest to kick off the Best Ever You show for the 2015 2016 season. We have author Mike Robbins with us. He's the author of three books, Focus on the Good Stuff, Be Yourself, Everyone Else is Already Taken. I always wondered where that uh, line came from. Now I know. And as late as nothing changes until you do. Um, he's a former pro baseball player who um, had a, a an injury that ended his career, um, but boy, he's taken off in so many different directions. For the past 14 years, he's been a sought-after motivational speaker. He delivers keynotes and seminars to groups of all kinds, so if you are um, looking to hire him for a keynote or something like that, his website's awesome. It's mike-robbins.com, that's R-O-B-B-I-N-S.com. And um, he's been featured on Forbes and the Wall Street Journal, ABC News, Oprah. I looked, I checked out his website. His website is so cool. His website made me want to go redo my website. <laughs> so uh, if you see me mooching a little bit of stuff there, I love his website. It's it's um it's just so easy to navigate, and all his videos are on there. And um, so if you leave the show wanting more, Mike Robbins, go to mike-robbins.com, and he's also on Twitter. Um, which we're going to be tweeting live t- throughout the show. He's Mike D. Robbins, so M-I-K-E-D-R-O-B-B-I-N-S on Twitter. So you can follow him there. Uh, if you want to tweet us questions, if you want to call us, we're at 714-868-0220. I'm going to screen the calls um, just to make sure it's you know you are you and you're going to ask a cool question. <laughs> uh, no weird questions. And um, we will... Um, <laughs> you never know what you're going to get with live radio, so we're going to screen uh, everything. And but seven one four eight six eight zero two two zero is the number to call. How are you, Mike? It's early out there in California, isn't it? It, it is, but you know, I got uh, little ones at home. Well, they're not that little anymore. I mean, they're nine and seven, so this is like you know, mid at least mid morning, if not almost midday on my end. So, thanks for having me, and uh, I'm honored to be kicking off the new uh, season here on best ever you and excited that you invited me yeah and thank you for being so easy to to reach i really um there weren't layers of you know 50 people to get to you so nice nice and refreshing um that was wonderful because i i saw your book and i'm like oh that i I beelined for him like that's who i want to kick off this this Mm. uh season if we can get him and i really appreciate you i'm doing this on such short notice and and everything um wow where should we start? Should we start with the books? Should we start with baseball? Should we? You, where do you want to go? I mean, I don't. Well, it sounds like you have a son who's a left-handed pitcher, so we got to start with baseball, right? <laughs> I kind of love baseball. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, before we before I went on the air, um, I was talking to um, this man named Brendan Sullivan, and mm-hmm. he owns Head First Honor Roll Camps, and yes. my son just went there in Long Island, and I said, you know. Um, this guy I'm interviewing, he's a Stanford lefty pitcher. You're from Stanford. Do you guys know each other? And he emailed me back, say Omaha. Yes. <laughs> Omaha. 
Omaha. Well, so Brendan Brendan Sullivan is one of my best friends from college. He's a teammate of mine. So I, you know, I'll get to the Omaha thing just as kind of a way of telling my baseball story. You know, I grew up uh, out here in California, near where I live, still now in the San Francisco Bay Area, and actually got drafted out of high school by the Yankees. Um, You know, I loved playing baseball as a left-handed pitcher like your son, and uh, I didn't end up signing with the Yankees because I got an opportunity to play baseball at Stanford, and uh, I go to Stanford, and um, some people listening may know that every year in June, they have the College World Series, which is the national championship for baseball, and um, it takes place in Omaha, Nebraska, and it's been in Omaha for the last 50-some-odd years, so it's a, like a big deal. And Stanford has got a pretty good baseball program and had won the national championship in the late 80s a couple times. And But the, in the years that I was there, my first couple years there, um, and a year or two before getting there, they hadn't the, the team hadn't made it back to Omaha. So my junior year, which was Brendan Sullivan's sophomore year, he and I lived together in an apartment, and we decided – to paint the word Omaha on the wall in our apartment. We were going to paint over it when the year was over before we moved out so we wouldn't get in trouble or fined. Um, but it was sort of like, a, you know, this was before I was really into personal growth in the way that I am now, but it was kind of like a, a vision board, if you will, a law of attraction thing, right? Like we put it out there, and uh, over the course of the year, we had some ups and downs and twists and turns, but we actually did make it to Omaha to the College World Series in 1995. And, uh, you know, he and I both would look at each other from time to time and go, we're going to look like idiots if we don't make it. <laughs> but we did. We, we, unfortunately, we didn't win the national championship, but we got there, and it was very, very exciting. Um, and I'm glad that he and I, you know, put it out there in the world. And that was actually the same year I got drafted by the Kansas City Royals, um, you know, another pro baseball team not quite as uh, – well-known as the Yankees, although the Royals have been doing well the last couple of years. And I signed a contract with the Royals. Um, and as I'm sure you know, and, and many people listening probably know, but the way it works in baseball is, you know, when you get drafted by a major league team, um, you have to go into the minor leagues. And there's actually quite a number of levels of the minor leagues. You have to work your way up to get to the big leagues. And unfortunately for me, uh, I got injured my third season, uh, still in the minors with Kansas City. I tore ligaments in my elbow and, uh, it ended up ending my career. I, you know, I had a series of surgeries after that and tried to come back, but I wasn't able to uh, to make it back to play. Which was, on the one hand, it was devastating because that, you know, from the age of about seven until 23 when I got hurt, and then almost 25 when I finally retired. I mean, that had been the sole focus of most of what I did. My whole, you know, you know, you've got a son who's pretty into I've... baseball. My whole yeah. world was oriented around it. Um, so. You know, it took a lot for me to try to figure out who I was without that and what to do next. But ultimately, as I've written about in my books and referenced throughout a lot of the work that I do, it it ended up being one of the greatest things that ever happened to me, Um, as I think often is the case for us when we go through something really painful and life-altering like that. It may not seem wonderful at the time, and it may be quite difficult and challenging to work through, but so often there's so many blessings even in the, the difficulty, you know. Were you happy that you had chosen Stanford as the college that you went to? <laughs> you know, I, I was. I mean, that was nice. And quite frankly, it's funny. I mean, I am glad I went to college, you know, because I did have that opportunity with the Yankees. I mean, I had had a minor injury to my arm 
which not very many people knew about. So that was in the back of my mind when I got drafted. But, you know, getting my education was important. But the funny thing was, I got my degree in American studies with a specialization in race and ethnicity. It was just something I was interested in studying. There was no real practical application of my degree in terms of, I want to go do this. I mean, I would have loved to majored in psychology or communication, but for just some logistical reasons, those were difficult majors for me to get into at Stanford. Um, I didn't really know what the heck I wanted to do. I was glad I had an education um, and glad that I had built that network, which ultimately became really helpful to me. Um, but I was pretty lost and scared when I got done playing baseball because I literally didn't know what could I do, what would I do. And, and at some deeper level, I think it was it was a real sort of you know, identity crisis for me, because that had been, you know, I was Mike, the baseball player, right? And that had been the thing through some of the difficulties in my childhood and, you know, all the difficulties that most of us go through in adolescence. I mean, baseball was the thing that I could sort of hold on to that, at least from an ego perspective, I felt like made me special and important, you know, and and with that gone, it was, it was a pretty vulnerable time for me. So what did you do? Well, I did a couple of things. Um, I got a really good therapist, which was great. I um, I spent a little bit of time trying to figure out, you know, I was in a relationship at the time with a woman that I'd met in college, and we were kind of back and forth, and were we going to be together, and there was that going on. I ended up getting a job that fall. Uh, it was 1998. You know, the dot-com boom was sort of in full swing out here in the San Francisco Silicon Valley area, so I got a job. Baseball actually helped. The guy who hired me had been a left-handed pitcher at North Carolina and just liked the fact that I'd been an athlete, right? Like, I didn't know anything about anything. Like, how am I going to get a job in sales, you know, advertising sales in the Internet world? But the economy was booming, and they were hiring lots of young people, and so I got a job. But outside of work, what I also started to do, you know, I was working with the therapist. I was reading a lot of books. I, I would find myself – I mean, this is so interesting as I look at my life now and look back. Even before getting hurt, what, the last few years when I was in college and then playing in the minor leagues, I would wander into bookstores and end up in the self-help personal growth aisle. And, and I was drawn to like reading some – I'm not even a big reader, which is funny, but I would want to buy these books and and learn whatever I could learn about. I was just really kind of – you know, I'd gone through a couple episodes of pretty serious depression when I was in college, and I wanted to try to figure out, like, I think life is, there's more to it than just the superficial stuff. Because on the surface, I was doing all the right things. I was going to a good school. I was playing baseball. People liked me. I was, you know, but I underneath, I just was dealing with a lot of pain and a lot of insecurity and a lot of fear and a lot of just the normal human stuff that, of course, I thought something was wrong with me and that I was crazy. Um but I had this kind of underneath that I had this weird sense of kind of knowing, like, I'm supposed to do this, meaning I'm supposed to write, I'm supposed to speak, I'm supposed to be part of this conversation. And that's kind of what would be in my head. And I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't even say it out loud because I was like, that was, cr-. I mean, it was like, I'm going to be a rocket scientist. I mean, that's kind of how it felt in terms of how would I get from where I am to there. Um yeah. But I also started taking some personal growth courses. So after baseball ends, you know, I get a job, and then um, I went and uh, I did a weekend workshop called the Landmark Forum and got really involved in Landmark Education, which is lots of personal growth seminars. And that really helped me a lot personally, but I also became fascinated with, wow, this whole world, all the books I was reading and this whole world of kind of seminars and workshops and people really starting to kind of do their inner work but do it in a, in a public kind of way, it's like 
I want to do that in some way. And I didn't know exactly how, but that, that really sparked something for me. Yeah, that's interesting. Not, are, you, are you more of an avid reader now, or are you still more of a writer? You know, it's funny. I'm actually a listener, and, and, and I, I wrote about this, and nothing changes until you do. I had this whole sort of, like, embarrassing kind of, like, little shame. I don't want people to know that I, I, I'm an auditory learner. So I can listen to people, someone talk. I can listen to an audio book or, you know, a radio interview like you and I are doing, and it'll stimulate me completely. But for some reason, reading, it's not that I never read. It's just I'm kind of a slow reader. I kind of wander around, you know. So I actually listen to a lot of audio books. That's the way that I read these days. And once I finally surrendered to that, actually, when I wrote my last book, I don't even actually like writing that much, quite frankly. I like speaking. and. <laughs> yeah. Writing my first two books was really challenging for me, just the process of writing. But my most recent book that I wrote in the summer of 2013 that came out last year, I actually spoke a lot of it. I used speech recognition software, and I wrote it in like three weeks. I mean, it was crazy. It was so easy and fun. That's really interesting. Yeah, I learned. Yeah. I think I think people learn in all sorts of different ways. I think that was one of the most fascinating classes I took when I had one of those jobs out of college where you didn't know what you were doing and all that stuff, and they put you through some of those seminars and courses. And I, I went to a, I was a trainer, and I went to a How Adults Learn class. Mm, and yeah. It, yeah, we learned very diff, more, much more complicated than we did as kids probably, or we didn't know it as, as children. But I learned by people showing me. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I yeah. I don't uh, I won't pick up a book and comprehend it perfectly. I'll I'll miss stuff. I'll, I might even miss yes. an obvious detail, or I can't remember who wrote what and all that stuff. Right. Boy, if you sit down and you show me what yes. to do, it'll be forever. It'll be forever there. Right. Well, and I think it's, it's so important that we we get that about ourselves, you know. And and I think there you're right. There's there's multiple ways in the experiential learning, like you're talking about showing someone, um, you know, visually in an auditory way. I mean, I think for a lot of us, particularly if we're of a certain age, you know, the way we were educated was mostly kind of sit in a classroom and, you know, have the teacher talk to us and tell us and lecture us and give us lots of information. And and it's not that there's no value to that, but understanding kind of how we learn and what we need, um, I think is so important. Both, Both, you know, for people like me and you who are attempting to teach others and inspire others, but also for any of us to understand, you know, and especially now with all this technology and the way that we're, for lack of a better way to describe it, kind of consuming information, if you will, figuring out sort of what we need and what we want and what works for us, I think is really important. Yeah. You you know, I I love your blog. Um, I, I I just have, I completely have memorized your website. <laughs> Everything about oh, it. I, he, for everybody listening, uh, Mike has this, this awesome blog on his website, which is mike-robbins.com. And I think what I love about it is it's so conversational. You feel, yeah. exa- you know, just like this, you feel like you're talking um, to us, you know, in our living rooms. Or, um, and I just, I just absolutely love your blog. And one mm. of the things um, that just, I don't know, it was like a frying pan over my head last night, how do you, it was how do you handle criticism? And mm. I was so shocked by the first line, 
I rece- you saying, I received some criticism in the past couple of weeks in a few different situations, and I'm like, seriously? You? <laughs> Somebody criticized <laughs> That was the reaction yeah. I had. I'm like, really? Somebody, yeah. somebody ripped on you for some reason, huh? I, what well, you, you'll appreciate this, though. As you know, I, I host a radio show on Hay House Radio, and I had someone just unsolicited send me a message through my website that said, have you ever listened to your own radio show? You're like the most self-absorbed, obnoxious person I've ever heard. I'm never listening to your show again, right? That's literally what it said. And it was funny because when I read it, I was like, you know, and I I kind of started shaking a little bit. And I was about to respond back, right, with something not very kind. And then I stopped for a second. And then I just, like, read it again. And then I kind of laughed. And then I kind of, my heart was kind of fluttering like that. And I deleted it. And I walked out of my office and I went over to find my wife and I, Michelle, and I said, Babe, can I just share with you what someone just said to me? <laughs> and we just had this whole conversation. And I said, you know, it's funny because I don't actually get a whole lot of criticism. I mean, the work that I do and the way that I do it, A, it's not like it's all that controversial, you know. And, and B, it's just, I don't know. I mean, it's just not something that I attract all that much. Um, but what I was thinking about in that experience and I, I also had received some, some critical feedback on a speech that I'd given about a week earlier from a client. Um, and I just was, you know, talking to Michelle about this and that that's an area for growth for me because I think for any of us, and I'm sure you can relate to this, if what we want to do is be out in the world in a public way to whatever degree, you know, inevitably there's going to be criticism. And even if we don't want to be out in the world in a public way, if we're just living our life and raising our kids and going to work and doing the everyday things, like we're going to get some criticism. And and how do we deal with that? How do we relate to that? How do we, you know, look, I don't know that there's any way to like, oh, don't let it bother you. Just let it roll off your back. I mean, I think if you're living, breathing, feeling sensitive human beings like most of us are, of course it's going to impact us. But it's so amazing how much attention we I know that I will give or that we give to a piece of criticism over some kind of praise or acknowledgement is is really interesting. Yeah, I had that um that kind of glorious <laughs> email too a few times in my life while doing this over the course of I don't know how many <laughs> years now. And yeah. I, I got one we were doing this motivational um we did a mo- Deb Scott and I did a motivational marathon. Um, mm. called The Motivation Marathon, and we had like 50 speakers. Um, Dr. Michael Bernard Beckwith was the ho- you know, the keynote and you know, all this stuff, and we got about interview four. And it was just like, you guys suck. <laughs> you know? oh, You're the worst interviewers ever. You don't let anybody get a word in edgewise. You're not as cool as you're getting. Just think right. of like 30 awful things you could say to somebody in show three when you have 47 more to go. <laughs> and they're right. both sitting there going, do we quit? What do, you, know. what do you think when, oh, yeah, when talk about that feeling where it's, like, so heart-wrenching that you feel like quitting or feel like giving up or are you just so rattled, yeah. rattled, you know, that picture term. Well, and I think, look, I mean, I think it's such an important thing to look at in life, whether it comes in the form of criticism or, you know, failure, right? We make a mistake or we fail at something really big, Um I mean, it's universal, you know, again, if we're putting ourselves out there in any way. I mean, I I had an experience just yesterday with my seven-year-old. You know, my wife and I have two girls, right, who are nine and seven, and my seven-year-old who just, like, I was taking her to soccer practice, and we were rushing a little bit, and I had to drop her off, and, you know, just life stuff, right? And 
and she got upset about something and she wanted something and didn't have something and she just got really, really upset and then started talking to me and was being, she was really angry with me and, and in my judgment was being kind of mean and hurtful and I was like, <gasps> and I literally found myself at first like I didn't know what to say and then I reacted and said some things I wish I hadn't said and then the whole thing, it just unraveled, and I'm sure anybody who's a parent of children of any age can relate to this. And by the time it literally, within a five-minute span, I went from having a great day and feeling wonderful to feeling like about two inches tall and like the worst father on the planet. Do you know what I mean? Like, how did I get so rattled by that whole thing? She's Enjoy seven. The club. Like, you know what I mean? And it was like literally I just had this moment where – oh my gosh, I feel completely overmatched and un, un, <laughs> unprepared and unqualified to be a parent, right? And that was just yesterday afternoon. But I think part of what, it was interesting because I dropped her off and I was driving actually to my men's group last night and I was in the car and I just kind of, when I got there, I parked. I was a little early and I leaned the chair back in my car and I laid down and I just let myself feel how was I feeling. No story about – it wasn't really about the interaction with Rosie, although that's what had triggered it. It was really just what's the feeling. And the feeling was a feeling of powerlessness, a feeling of sadness. And I just let myself feel those things. And what was really interesting is when I got out of my car a few minutes later and went inside and sat with the men in my men's group and then shared a little bit about it, I felt fantastic by the end of the night. Like I wasn't – and part of what I think allowed that to happen for me is that I actually let myself feel the feelings. What will happen, I think, with criticism or with failure, even when someone comes at us with something kind of mean and disrespectful, is that we'll either avoid it. This is what I do a lot of times, avoid it, blow it off, justify it, rationalize it, or engage with it, but from that kind of you know, yesterday when, when I was having that difficult interaction with with my seven-year-old, literally at one point I'm trying to talk to her. We're on the way walking to soccer practice. And I'm like, come over here, talk to me. You know, and then she says something, something, and she drops her soccer ball. Do you know what I did? I kicked her soccer ball like away, like I was like seven myself. <laughs> I mean, it was like, oh, my God, did you really just do that? But I literally, like a seven-year-old who doesn't have access to emotions and words, I didn't know what else to do, and I kicked the ball. And then it was like, oh, my gosh. But, but that's like a metaphor for, I think, what we do when we get flustered is we go and kick the ball. We go and turn on the TV. We go and eat some food. We do something that we know to do physically that we think is going to help us. But what we're trying to do is move away from the uncomfortable feeling instead of really just feel it. And, you know, anger and sadness and grief and helplessness and all these, right, jealousy they're not going to kill us in fact usually if we allow ourselves to feel them we'll move through them on the other side and it actually becomes this empowering process where it's like wow again think of criticism think of failure if i can embrace those experiences not that i like them not that i'm wanting to attract them per se but they're going to show up in life it's part of life and what if i wasn't so scared of them what if I was like, yeah, great, that means I'm alive. That means I'm, right? Somebody says something and it hurts my feelings. Wow, how cool is that? I'm alive. Like, I actually care. I actually feel. And what if so much of what we do, or in many cases don't do, is from our fear of those potentially negative or uncomfortable situations? I couldn't agree with you more. Instead of... Uh... I think a lot of people shut down. I really do. I think, or, yeah. or like, dude, that's so funny that you said kick the kick the soccer ball, but or we band aid. 
Um, there's yeah. so many different reactions to that, and that's um, yeah, really good insight, though, and and it's a, a great story too. I I wonder if um, I I bet there's so many parents. We have a lot of um, parents who listen to the show. We also have a lot of teenagers for some reason that listen to our show. They download it on on uh, replay. Really? So can I flip that around? Yeah, we have a huge yeah. um, teen teen and young college audience. Can I flip yeah. that around though? And um, yeah. if you're the kid there and dad's kicked the ball um, and you're upset and all that stuff what does the kiddo do <laughs> well you know i mean i do think seven, the difference between seven and 17 and you know 22 is is different you know developmentally yeah. but i think you know what's interesting what i find in my own experience with teenagers and young adults um and remembering from my own experience of that you know even being 41 now and it's been a few years is uh i think what it what it comes down to a lot of times in life is being able to similarly. And it's harder to do, quite frankly, when we're younger. It just is because we tend to have less access and awareness. I don't mean that in a condescending or disrespectful way, but just less time walking around on the planet, less time being in our own skin, less time experiencing our emotions and, and having that level of awareness and consciousness. But I think that a lot of times what's happening when there's a difficult interaction, particularly parent and child, is that people aren't being heard, right? And when I talk to teens um, and have worked with teens over the years, a lot of the frustration is feeling like they're not being heard, they're not being seen, they're not being respected. Um, And so, you know, it's funny, like I'll go speak to a group of teenagers, high school kids. Actually, you'll appreciate this. Like I speak every summer at the Stanford All-Star Baseball Camp so it's three or 400 high school kids from around the country, baseball players, and some of their parents. And inevitably, here's what the parents will come and say to me after I speak. And I'm talking about how to deal with the you know, pressure and fear of baseball, but it's really more about life and a lot of different things that I speak about that's kind of specifically geared towards a group of, of you know, high school baseball players in this case. But the parents will come up to me and they'll say, oh, thank you for your talk. And, you know, I say the same things at home, and he doesn't listen to me, right? <laughs> and I'll often say, I know because you're his four mom. Of those. Yeah, exactly. You're his mom or you're, you know, you're his dad or it's like, look, it's, I said, you know, so part of what it is, I think for, for teens, you know, and, and young people in that age is to try to figure out what it is you need, what support do you need? And it may come from your parents, but it may not, but to start to really inquire into that in yourself, ask for that and, and, and start to, you know, because again, this is true in any, you know, disagreement, conflict there's, there's, we're almost never arguing about what we're arguing about, right? I mean, this is true with our spouses. This is true with our friends and family members. This is definitely true. We're almost never arguing about what we're arguing about. That's true. We're not, right? And I remember years no, ago, Michelle not. and I, my wife and I went to a therapist, and, and he said this great thing to us. He said, look, when you guys get into an argument, here's usually what the, the – first of all, it's usually one or both of you not feeling appreciated by the other one. That's kind of usually the source of it. But the way the argument will play out is that you – will start to argue for who's the bigger victim, right? Oh, you think it's bad for you? No, let me tell you how bad it is for me, right? And you start you having that argument like, yeah, no, it's worse for me. Do you have any idea what I do for this family? You know, I mean, that argument that we often will have, again, with our spouse, but again, even with the, the teenager and their parent. You, you don't understand. You don't know. Oh, I was a teenager once. You don't know what it's like to be trying to rate. You know, I mean, it's, we may not be saying that, but that's kind of what's underneath it. Or when I was your age, or you should appreciate everything you have, and I didn't have this one. I mean, it's all of that, right? 
that's arguing for the, who's the bigger victim. And the therapist said this great thing and said, if you can catch yourself doing it and stop, it's really great. Because if you really think about that, it's kind of a crazy argument to have. Because even if you win, what do you win? Ta-da! I'm the biggest victim. It's worse for me. Like, that's really not anything to – what you're wanting right is empathy. About. Yeah, what you're really wanting is empathy. Can you please see me? Can you please hear me? Can you please let me know you love me, you got my back, you you get where I'm coming from? And the challenge right. with the people closest to us, our children, our parents, our spouse, our closest friends, our family members, is that we get so triggered, right? It's like yesterday, if I was dealing with somebody else's seven-year-old, that would have been totally easy for me. But it was mine, and it was triggering some deep stuff in me, and oh my gosh, and why is she acting like this, and I should be doing a better job as a father, and da-da-da-da-da-da, all this stuff. When, again, if it was your seven-year-old, I probably would have had a lot more compassion and a lot more space and been, oh, wow, honey, you, you could really, what do you need? What do you want, right? But being able to interact that way with my own daughter in that moment for a variety of reasons was difficult for me. So a lot of it does come back to, and this is the theme of, Nothing changes until you do. It's having compassion for ourselves. And that's something that many of us struggle with, but even back to your question about teens and young adults, is when we're in that stage in life, very, very difficult for us to have much compassion for ourselves. Because in those years, everything's black and white. Everything's good and bad. Everything's right and wrong. And if, you know, most young people that I talk to, and I remember myself as a teenager and as a young man in my early 20s, I was unbelievably harsh with myself, as I have a tendency to be at times still now. It doesn't necessarily go away, but I didn't even have that awareness that I was being harsh with myself. I really thought it was the truth. No, I'm really either the best or the worst, depending on what just happened in the baseball game or what my girlfriend said to me or what grade I got in school or whatever. I think a lot of people are like that. Um, yeah. Uh, very much. I know I am very much like that. I try not to be. But yes. I, I'm wired that I'm wired that way. Yeah, well, and some of it, you know, what I think is that it's it's the adolescent that lives within us. No matter what our chronological age is now, there's a an aspect of ourselves in adolescence, just like there's an aspect of our child, right? And and if you think about developmentally what goes on in those stages, and as adolescents, and again, any of the young people who are listening to us. And, and again, this used to be hard for me to hear when I was younger because I would get all offended by it. I had a counselor that worked with me all the time. He would say, respect your age, respect your age. And I would get defensive. What do you mean? What do you mean? I'm, I'm wise beyond my years. And he would always laugh at me and say, you, you don't need to prove that to me. I know that you are. But you've got to appreciate where you are in your life. And that part of adolescence and young adulthood is it's filled with an enormous amount of fear and insecurity for most of us. Because so much is happening and so much is changing. And it's like, you know, you have this adult body, but your mind and your heart and your whole consciousness is trying to catch up with that. And I think one of the things we're dealing with in our culture today is that things are just speeding up. And the expectation and the pressures and the, like, the awareness that young people have these days, it's incredible. And there's a beautiful aspect to it that they have so much awareness and so much understanding of how the world works and what's going on. But there's also some real dark side to that as well because there's all this pressure and expectation that I think keeps ramping up and I think it's more now than it's ever been. It's, uh, I think that is so true. Yeah, I'm a mother of four um, I have four boys. Well, they're not really, they're young men. I, I just stopped calling them boys, I guess. <laughs> they're young right. men. They're, um, they're going to be 14, 16, 18, and 20 this year by the end of the year. Okay. 
and um, yeah, it's it's crazy all the things yeah. that they're exposed to in social media and yeah. um, how fast high school goes now with all the yeah. testing and the colleges approaching and just uh, you know everything um, just yeah. backed up um, considerably. Um, how how well, I anyway, I I root my kids. I try to um, root them in gratitude. Um, yes. I I have this thing that I say every morning um, in my social media. Most mornings anyway, it says "Good morning from Maine" or wherever I am, and and right. it's just a hashtag gratitude, and it's got yeah. a picture I took or something or whatever. And um, my kids are on social media too, and how I know it is, I'll come down in the kitchen and they'll go hashtag gratitude and make fun of me, <laughs> you know, in some in some weird. But I know it's sinking in in whatever way it should. Um, yeah. But what do you think about gratitude? Because you said compassion for ourselves, and I sort of think all the self-love and self-worth and compassion and all that also, I think there's gratitude in there, too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, my first book is called Focus on the Good Stuff, which is all about gratitude yeah. and appreciation. I mean, one of the things on social media that I try to do a couple times a week is just put the question out, what are you grateful for? And I love, you know, I do it for two reasons. I do it because I'm curious and I think it's a great practice for people, for all of us to focus on what we're grateful for. I do it selfishly because when I hear what other people are grateful for, it adds to my gratitude, right? I mean, I ask that question. If you call our office, it even says it on the voicemail. Hey, sorry, we missed you. You know, leave a message, blah, blah, blah. In your message, let us know something you're grateful for. And it's such a simple question, but it's a profound question and practice. And gratitude is more than an attitude. It's a practice. It really is. And it's so fundamental to everything that we do. You know, and it's it's so amazing to me over the years of, of doing this work. Like, I, you know, I do a lot of work in the corporate world, and I speak a lot at big events and things. But I also will sometimes work with, you know, executive teams or leadership teams inside of organizations. And one of my favorite exercises to do is an appreciation exercise. And often we'll end a session this way. And, you know, let's say there's 10 people sitting around a table, boardroom, kind of, you know, serious, high we're talking about business stuff and teamwork and how to be more effective. And then I'll say, okay, we're going to end the session, and what we're going to do is we're going to go around, and each person is going to have a turn. And when it's their turn, I'm going to give you all a few minutes to let them know what you appreciate about them. Mm. And it's such a sweet, moving, powerful exercise. And oftentimes it'll start a little awkward at first because people are a little hesitant about it. And then inevitably, I mean, I've spent an hour and a half at times with a group where they just, like every single person at the table wants to acknowledge every single person. I'll often say, you know, we're going to run long, and they'll say, that's okay. And we'll just go around, and it's just this, like, wow. It's not about their job, and it's not about, it's, it's about what do I really appreciate about you. So relationally, appreciation is one of the most powerful energies that we can engage and exchange with each other and from a mindset perspective gratitude you know i I love the idea and i've been saying it for years that gratitude and victimhood can't coexist so the moment we're in a state of gratitude right about anything look even when we're dealing with something really difficult right what why is this happening for me instead of to me a great question to ask what's the silver lining here not to sugarcoat it and avoid the pain or the challenge of it but like wow, you know, really feeling that sense of gratitude. You know, you, you sprain your ankle and ah, it hurts and it's hard and you're hobbling around. It's like, stop, and it'll often force you and you'll go, wow, the rest of my body feels really great. I didn't pay attention to that until I sprained my ankle. Yeah. 
I don't like spraining my ankle. I wish it weren't this way, but you know what I mean? So all of a sudden it's like there's gratitude in that. The gratitude yeah. for, you know, I mean, it happens and we, we catch ourselves all the time. It's like there's one of my favorite lines in one of my favorite movies ever is in Good Will Hunting, right? Like yeah, I love that movie. I've had all my kids watch that one. Well, you know, know it's amazing it. now. It's almost 20 years old, right? But, but yeah. you know, Robin Williams and... And 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 sadly, you know, Robin Williams is a great example of someone unbelievably talented. Unbelievable. I mean, one of, probably my favorite comedian entertainer ever. And and this is I often talk about Robin in the last year since he uh, committed suicide. That like we spend a lot of time and energy looking outside of ourselves to be successful, thinking that's going to fulfill us. Like it's very difficult to imagine being more talented and more successful than Robin Williams, right? Oh, and the yeah. fact that he obviously had some really, really deep, dark demons going on within him, I think for all of us is just a reminder of, like, that inner work and that inner peace. And I don't say this with any judgment towards him, really more compassion and empathy, that that's our work to be doing, to really love ourselves. And part of that process is being grateful. But there's a line in that movie where he's the therapist, right, and he's working with Matt Damon, who's, you know, this young, brilliant, but kind of troubled young man, and he says to him, you'll have bad times in life. Everybody does. He said, they'll just wake you up to the good stuff you weren't paying attention to. Hmm. And I think that that's an interesting theme that we can all see in most of our lives. And then the question that I often have for myself and other people is, what if we didn't have to wait until something bad happened for us to stop and take inventory of how great things are? What if we did it now? I try and teach teach that. I, I hope my kids grow up with that in mind. Yes. Um, instead of having to learn all this stuff when they're 40 or when something happens and they've got a divorce yeah. going on or whatever. Um, exactly. You know, something crappy's happened. I, I hope that um, if anything good comes out of best ever you, I hope it's yeah. that, that my kids and, and their friends and whoever's hanging out in our house has some um, baseline knowledge of feeling that way from the get-go. Yeah. For sure. And look, in some ways, I think, again, it's, it is a journey for all of us. And we, there is a part of it that I think, you know, and, and, you know, you've obviously done a great job in teaching your sons and, and we try to do the best we can in teaching our girls. Um, the best you can. The best you can. Right. And, and in some ways, you know, I remember one of the best pieces of parenting advice I ever got was from a mentor of mine right before Samantha, my nine-year-old was born he said uh, you know Mike the most important job you have with your daughter when she's born is to teach her how to love herself and I said really how do I do that and he said you love yourself and you let her see that that's how you teach her how to love herself so I think a lot of times with gratitude with self-love with self-care with focus with all the things we want for our children I wish he was more whatever right it's like anything. It's, we say, say that about our spouse. We say that about our boss. It's like, do what Gandhi taught, right? Be the change. And it's, it, it's not in a self-righteous way, not in an arrogant way, but really, like, can I model this first and, you know, do the best that I can? And in, and in some ways, you know, I mean, all the practice in the world, you know, life shows up with all kinds of opportunities for us to learn and for us to grow. And... You know, that to me is, is the most important aspect of it, that we really enter into life with that growth mindset of like, how can I learn? How can I grow? How can I serve? How can I continue to evolve? You know, even a situation, I mean, like my my little meltdown in response to my the meltdown of my daughter yesterday. It's like, okay, wow, great growth opportunity for me. 
you know, or we can spend and waste a lot of time trying to do everything right and get it perfect, which, as we all know, sets us up for failure and stress and misery because, like, it's never enough, right? It's never perfect enough. And that's one of the biggest challenges I think we face in our culture today for young people and for all of us is this erroneous notion of perfection that is sort of fed to us in every direction. It's just not reality. Yeah, I I sometimes say to people, um, I'd like to have a perfect heart surgeon if I ever need one, and I'm <laughs> or something like that. You know, yeah. there's perfection yeah. right there. I need some perfection there. But yeah, other than yeah. that, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this perfection thing. Uh, if if somebody's perfect out there, give us a call and tell us why, and give yeah. us something to learn from. Because boy, uh, that is yeah, life is so not perfect. In fact. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift to your blo- shift back to your blog for a minute and ask you: Have yep. you figured out whether you can survive without your cell phone? Oh, geez, <laughs> that's a yeah, that was funny. You know, I, I, I yes and no. I mean, I like many people, I have kind of a, a love hate relationship with my and and I don't know if it's good or not, but we just upgraded to. You know, I got this iPhone 6 Plus, so I'm walking around with like a mini iPad in my pocket, which I said to Michelle the other day, gosh, it's even more addicting because it's so much easier to watch video and it's such high quality. But yeah, I mean, I shared on my blog over the summer, you know, we were heading off to the lake for 4th of July and we were rushing around trying to get out of the house and we had to pick up Samantha at basketball camp and get, you know, a whole thing, right? And in in the craziness of packing and trying to get everything into the car for four days away at the lake with our friends, I misplaced my phone. I knew it wasn't lost, lost. Like, I didn't leave it on an airplane or something, but it was in the house, and I couldn't find it, and we had to go. And so I left four days away without the phone. And uh, I have, like, actual shaking and withdrawals going. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, the first 24 hours were tough. I mean, in some ways, you know, I could... I could rationalize it. Well, it was 4th of July weekend. There wasn't going to be a whole lot going on. And the 4th, I think, this year was on a Friday, and we were leaving on a Thursday. So it literally was probably the best four days of the year as a business owner to forget and not have your phone. But I basically just texted my assistant and my sister from my wife's phone and just said, hey, I don't have my phone, so if you need me, call Michelle's phone or text her. Um, I think everything will be okay. And then by about after about 24 hours, I was like so blissed out not to have that thing, because I mostly would have tried to have left it in my bag and in the in the cabin when we went to the lake and the whole bit. But I I would have been in this internal conflict like I often am. Oh, I got to check my. You know, it's just it's become addictive for me, and I think many of us. And you know, again, I love and look. I mean, I I appreciate and admire. I mean, a number of the companies in Silicon Valley you know, Google and Facebook and Twitter and all these great companies, they're clients of mine. I think they're brilliant. I love what they do. I'm I'm in awe of what they do and the technology that we have and the way we can connect and communicate. And I mean, look, even you and I talking right now and blog talk radio and social media and iTunes and like the fact that we can have this conversation and, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you had to have if an actual radio show on terrestrial radio in some way that we could have this conversation and that people could be driving in their cars listening or at home listening. Like, I mean, just that alone is remarkable. But at the same time, I think it's also gotten us, you know, crazy in so many ways. Like, I, I, I look around at times in airports or at Disneyland with the kids or wherever, and it's like, geez, everybody's on their phone. Like, we're not engaging with real life. And, you know, again, so I just think it's something for all of us to navigate as as effectively as we can, 
you know, and, and be compassionate with ourselves, but also aware, like, how do we really want to live and how do we want to show up and what are we teaching our children and what does really matter? Um, is technology important and powerful? Yes, absolutely. Is it beauty to it? Absolutely. But is there some danger? Significantly. So it's it's a challenge, I think, for each and every one of us. And, you know, I don't know about how it is for you, but in some ways it's gotten harder for me. Like, I've had this awareness before, but my life is now, like, trying to turn my phone off now is so much harder because, oh, gosh, the map, oh, gosh, my contacts, oh, gosh, my calendar. It's like everything is on that damn thing. <laughs> I can't figure out how I drove anywhere before. I know, exactly. I I'm like, like really you... seriously, how did I get anywhere? Do you, but do, you do this now? This makes me – now, I'm someone who's always had a pretty good sense of direction. I know how to get places. Oh, I don't. I find myself now oh. – because I'm so obsessed with, like, traffic and I use the Google map or I use Waze, the little app that will tell me. It, like, I will put it in when I'm going somewhere to get back home to so figure out how long know? it's going to take me. But then I leave it on and it's giving me directions to get back to my house. Where you know. And I'm like, and I'm like dude, turn it off. You know how to get home. What are you doing? But I'm like, yeah, but I want to know exactly when I'm going to get there so I can tell my – like, what is that? <laughs> I didn't even know that existed a few years ago, and now I'm completely obsessed with the little woman's voice on the app telling me, turn left, turn right, you'll be there in 20 minutes. I'm like, really? I feel like Luke Skywalker sometimes in the in Star Wars, right? You know when he's got the thing, and then all of a sudden he turns it off, and they're like, he turned off his device. What's he doing? And they're like, he just uses the Force to blow up the Death Star. I'm like, I need to use the Force. I need to turn the thing off and just use the Force and get home and pretend it's like 1992 and I know how to do this, you know? Mine yesterday said turn right onto our street. Like, unbelievable. <laughs> Don't you know our street, Mom? Really? Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. But that's like a perfect. Oh. But that's like a perfect microcosm of where we are. Again, is it amazing that that technology exists? Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, is but, it crazy oh. that we've now become so dependent right. upon it we don't trust ourselves? I mean, <laughs> I've gotten lost now because I'm following the app when I actually know where I'm going. I'm in San Francisco trying to get to a meeting, and I'm like, I'm like struggling between do I trust my gut and know which way to go or do I trust the app because it has some it kind of secret power to know where the traffic is and all this. And then I'm like, I'm lost, oh. and I know where I'm going. This is crazy, you know? That's so, so funny. Oh, obviously, yeah. I have oh, a little bit you. of uh, emotional charge around this particular issue, but I'm no, glad no, you brought it yeah. up. Well, I actually have to give my phone to my husband and say, hide this for the weekend. Yeah. Really. <laughs> but, but then I, <laughs> I find the iPad, and I'm like, oh, crap. Oh, yeah, I know. Like, and then, yeah, <laughs> now we have multiple devices. We can find a way through it, you know. It's, like, it's here, crazy. take all of it and lock the door. Oh, I know. Really I know. Funny. Well, that's, you know, and again, but I think it comes back to a lot of it is like having some awareness, <laughs> some compassion for ourselves, but also asking the question, you know, and this is a question I, I ask myself all the time. It's like, how am I actually doing? How am I feeling? Right? Like really checking in with myself. But then also for us to like, what do I want? Or or why am I doing the things I'm doing? Not coming from a critical place, but just to really be aware. You know, because it's so easy to get caught up in life. You know, you know, you're raising four now young men, right? Brother, we're raising kids. Or we're doing our work. Or, you know, it's like, I, there are moments in time where I can even see it happen, and it's like, you know, as we move along, as we get a little bit older, we stop and go, like like even us just talking about Goodwill Hunting, I mean, things like that blow my mind when I think, that movie came out in like 97 or 98, and I'm like, gosh, that's pushing 20 years. That yeah, seems well, like a couple years Ferris ago, right? Ferris and all of it. I all know. Of those movies. But, 
I'm rewatching them with The Breakfast Club was 30 years ago. Years ago, I know. I we, I, my um, one of my kids. I said, "No, you got to sit down and watch this." And we watched Sixteen Candles, and he oh. thought it was the funniest movie ever. And he goes, "That's why everybody bullies people, though. That movie right there, that movie, because <laughs> you know, they're calling yeah. dividing people into nerds and geeks and all this stuff." It's true. And he goes, "This is why we have to do these classes now." And I'm like, "The eighties right. ruined us." The eighties ruined everybody. Yeah. Well, but, but but if you put things if you put things into oh, historical geez. context, it is it is kind of amazing when you think about stuff again. And for all of us, I mean, and some people who are much older too will have a different perspective. And if you're younger, but to really look at the way that life moves, you know, and what really matters. I mean, I think you know, and this is one of the reasons why in nothing changes until you do. I talk um, quite a bit about. My, the death of my mother. My mom died in 2011. And so it was, as often is the case when you lose somebody close, you know, it was very significant in my life. But I've, you know, having lost both my parents and having gone through the deaths of some pretty significant people, one of the things about death that I think is important for us to look at and pay attention to and really feel into, even though it can be incredibly painful is it puts life in perspective in a lot of ways. Like what truly matters. You know, I was just talking to a friend yesterday about a friend of his who I did not know who had, who had died very suddenly. You know, in our age, in, in his 40s, with, with young kids, yeah. with like, I mean, just heart-wrenching. But as he was talking to me about it and sharing, and, and I was really moved by his sharing of his friend and how important he was and how sad he was. And I was just trying to be, and, and to be in the presence of that sometimes it takes something like, whoa, can I open my heart up enough to really feel this? And, but I, I was just struck by, wow, as I often am, you know, Wayne Dyer passed away just a few weeks ago and we're going to be honoring him just this coming weekend down in Orlando at the Hay House event. And it, it really does have a stop and go, wait a minute, what matters to me? What's really important? Like this thing that I'm stressed out about, this thing that I'm worried about, this thing that I, oh my God, I can't believe, right? Even to the conversation we were having earlier about criticism, it's like in the face of death, who cares? So somebody thinks I talk too much about myself. Okay, so what? You know? So I messed up at work and tried really hard to do something and I failed or they gave the job to somebody else and not me or, you know, your son who's the left-handed pitcher who probably wants to pitch in college and maybe he gets to go to the school he really wants to go to or maybe he ends up going to number three on his list and like that's a big deal when you're 17 18 years old but he'll live you know what i mean like i mean i think remembering those things for all of us even the big things even the the divorce or the right oh my gosh we have to sell our house or whatever i mean those things it's like what really matters when i was talking to my friend Yesterday, he was just talking to me about how much he loved this guy and how generous he was. And and, and I was struck as, as I walked away from the conversation, not, not to get too melodramatic about it, but it's like, well, what would people say about me? Right? You know, for us to think about that in a real way, like think about our own death. You know, one of my blog posts from about a year and a half ago after I saw Ariane Huffington speak, she she talks about this idea of, are you living your resume or are you living your eulogy? Right? Are you are we so caught up in what we're doing and who we are and our title and our status and our thing that or are we really living the things that we hope people will say about us when they eulogize us after we're gone? 
And I think that's a really powerful question to ask ourselves because they're not going to say, oh, you know, she had a lot of followers on Twitter. Oh, you know, she really had like the most amazing car I've ever seen. Oh, wow, he was really an incredible, you know, he made senior vice president when he was only 43 years old. Like, it's not really going to matter. It's like, remember. I think people remember how you treated them. How you treated That's them and I how think. they felt around you. I really you. do. Because you can remember yeah. when somebody, I, you can remember, it's kind of like what we were kind of all the way back to the beginning, too. Like, you can kind of remember that criticism. You can also, yep. I think, really remember that moment where somebody was really mean to you or, or like, really awesome to you. Like, I'll, yeah. I, I don't think I'm ever in a million, you know, as long as I live, I'm never going to forget how awesome, just to bring him back into the conversation, too, Brennan Sullivan was. There were yeah. Jillian people all around him at that head first event and yes. he he actually you know I, I thought oh, is he really listening he completely engaged remember yes. heard me knew me I emailed he's like yep I remember you you know uh, that's just crazy cool you well, always remember people like that who treat you like you matter Absolutely. Well, and you know Brendan Brendan Sullivan was my roommate at Stanford my junior year when yeah. I went through one of the deepest depressions of my life. And that dude had my back. Like, and we were young, and we weren't talking about it much, but he was there for me. Like, when my dad died a few years later, I was 27, I got the sweetest, most beautiful, heartfelt letter from him in the mail. You know, and those kind of things. Like, it's people like that, right? And I don't, you know, Brendan, and we call him Sully Lipton. Well, thank you. You're like that, too, though. It's cool. Well, and I think, but that's, but the thing that we got to remember in life, and, and I got to remember this, even just having this conversation is a good reminder, because it's so easy to get caught up in the, who am I, where am I, what am I doing, what, da, 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 right? The stuff that, like, what do people think about me who don't even really know me, right? Wanting to, I mean, this is the adolescent that lives within us, right? It's wanting to impress, Look, this is the danger, I think, of the social media world we live in. How many likes do I have on Facebook? What did people say? Well, I post something and, and all that stuff. And it's not that there's no interest in value. I want people to be impacted by my work, right? You want people to be impacted by your work. You and I want people to listen to this conversation and have it make a difference for them. So it does matter if more people listen than less at some level. But in some ways, if we then define our value based on that, it's like letting the scoreboard determine the game instead of the other way well, around. And then you never have enough either. I was just talking about yeah. this, and I have to go pretty soon because I've got to deliver a lunch. <laughs> I have to yeah. go up to the high school. Um, so yeah. I have like two more minutes. Um, yep. And I hope you come back because you are just awesome. And I just, I love, you're so conversational, and I love your books. And I I, I know people love you too. So um, I hope you come back. Um, and I just lost my train of thought. What was I saying? <laughs> I said i got to go. Um, we, we were talking about, oh, no, I just interrupted myself. Isn't that awesome when we do that okay. <laughs> on live radio? I love it. But, I love it. <laughs> uh, well, listen, no, I, whatever. I, no, it was about success. Like, is, is yeah. success, um, uh, you know, sometimes when you, like, I know I feel this way sometimes. I've got a book out there and I've got all this stuff, and, and, you, and you go, God, I'm never, I'm not successful. Uh, yeah. And what's the measure of success? My my bank account, how many followers right. you have. You know, I, you sit around and you go, and I've I've just completely changed in the past probably five years about what's successful. And yeah. cause I'm a I'm a resuscitation survivor. You know, I've, I'm I'm not really supposed to be here, um, mm. but by by great doctors, I um, you know, I I lived through an allergic reaction, and mm. 
uh, yeah, just nearly died and all that stuff. And so I'm I I'm rooted like so seriously in gratitude and all the things that you were talking about and I, and perspective of what's going on that yeah. um, defining. The, my definition of success probably is so far skewed and different than everybody's. Yeah. Well, and I think it's a beautiful thing you know, to say. It's probably a great way for us to, to wrap this up because I think it's really up for us to define that. You know, yeah. and I do think, again, even, you know, not to be too heavy about it, but I think that that's one of the things that death reminds us of is that we get to define our own success and our own happiness and ultimately it's not about a lot of the things that we spend and waste a lot of time thinking about and worrying about it's really what's true for me right what's in my heart and and when we have that sense that authentic sense within ourselves of i am successful it doesn't matter what the external circumstances are and we all have had the experience i know i've had many times when the externals are quote-unquote successful and it doesn't feel that way Right, because yeah. it really yeah. is at the end of the day, like it's about our experience of ourselves in our lives and what we say. What's the story we're telling ourselves? And if the story is one that actually empowers us and inspires us, that's how we get to live. If the story is such that we're not good enough and it's not good enough, it doesn't matter how beautiful, successful, fill in the blank we are. It doesn't make any difference. Genius. Well, <laughs> I. <laughs> I'm so grateful that you're here with us for the full hour. It's really cool that you um that you're here and I'm I'm sure so many people learned so much from you during this past hour. So I just want to thank you again for being with us and um is there anything that we just in like 30 seconds wind us up is there anything that I missed completely that you that you wanted to talk about? Your books are awesome. <laughs> Be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. Focus on the good stuff and nothing changes until you do. Um, and then your website is mike-robbins.com. Anything yes. I miss? You know, there's one thing that I just want to mention. We're we're actually in the process of raising some money to try to build a school in Ecuador. So if people are interested cool. in that, when you go to my website, if you just go to mike-robbins.com slash school, we've started this really cool crowdfunding campaign that we're really excited about. So I'm, okay. uh, Do you mind little... if I put that link out? Please, I would be honored. I would be honored. Okay, we'll put that link out into our network. So, Great. Awesome. Thank you. All right, thank you so much. And um, make sure you I, – I think you need another, like, Omaha. Do you have <laughs> an, area in your, um, an area in your house with a big – I've done that before, too, painted murals on the wall. Yes. You need a new one. Um, All right, well, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll be in an inquiry about what that could be. I appreciate it. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a wonderful You're day. And thank you. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Take care. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.